Hello, welcome to It's Friday, your Mail Plus guide to the best of what's happening in the world of arts and entertainment. My name's Jim White and this week we'll be talking about Billy Piper's new comedy on Sky, I Hate Susie. There were some photos posted online last week, um, supposedly of me, stolen from me in some mass hack. And we'll be meeting Michael Cashman who first came to prominence in EastEnders, where he was involved in the historic television moment, the first kiss between gay characters shown on a soap. On screen, if we see in, in, in a show that we know with characters that we know, if we see something that otherwise before has been depicted as different and alien, and it seems ordinary, uh, we engage much more because it's coming into our homes, we feel comfortable. First, though, to shine a light on what's happening and to bring us some of the new releases of the week, I'm joined by the Daily Mail's television writer, Claudia Connell, the Mail's music critic, Adrian Thrills, and the Mail's Boswell of the New York scene, Jackie Stephen. Claudia, it's the dog days of summer. The weather's atrocious outside. What are we going to watch on telly? Uh, well, there is a new comedy coming up on Sky Atlantic next Thursday. It's called I Hate Susie. It, it's a Sky original and it, it stars Billy Piper. And it, I think it's been quite a long time since we've seen Billy in anything. She plays Susie Pickles, who's this 30-something woman. And her character shot to fame as, as a teenager, a bit like Billy. Uh, she won a TV talent show. She's living this idyllic life in the country. She's happily married. And she's just landed a role in a Disney movie. So things are looking up for her. But then compromising photos leak of her on the internet and uh, worse still the the person in the photographs with her is not her husband so her whole career hangs in the balance and i just want to say that even though i have no issue with whatever it is that person's supposed to be doing in the photo <laughs> it's not me no on paper it sounded really good but i i just i just didn't enjoy it at all it it, it felt to me like they would just trying desperately to sort of piggyback off the success of Fleabag um, but it just wasn't very funny it wasn't very sharp and it was it was actually just a bit boring do the uh, compromising photographs involve her ex-husband Chris Evans by any chance uh, no I guess so it's, I, yeah, it's a long time ago forget that they had a very short marriage didn't they but I really admire her because she didn't take anything from that marriage she wanted to be independent she stayed independent from him and they're still really good friends I like Billy enormously I think she's a terrific actor and it's just a shame that she's done something that sounds like it's not going to be very good uh, Adrian, uh, the TV schedules are absolutely rubbish in the middle of the summer. Is there anything musical that we could uh, listen to to take our blues away? Well, the big releases, are, they're still coming thick and fast. I mean, this week there's a new one by the Waterboys. You remember, remember, might remember from uh, The Hole of the Moon back in the 80s. And uh, even more significantly, the, uh, the sixth album from The Killers, which was one of those albums that was originally due out in May. It was due to coincide with a massive world stadium tour that was going to propel an already big band right up into the kind of higher echelons of rock alongside U2 and the Stones. But of course, all that's fallen victim to the uh, coronavirus. So the album is sneaking out rather apologetically three months after it should have done. But it's, but it's a good record. The band, have uh, they've lost a member, the guitarist Dave Kuning. He's on a sabbatical. So they've, they've had to get a few guests in to kind of cover for him. 
and they've also brandon the singer he's he's moved from his beloved las vegas to the mountains of utah i mean kind of vegas was kind of essential to what the killers were all about in the early days that kind of tacky glitz and glamour on songs like mr brightside but uh, he's now having a, a kind of slightly more pastoral life with his wife and three kids up in the uh, utah mountains but it's still a, a pretty solid record. It, it's kind of the usual mixture of kind of heartland rock and, and kind of modern electronics and big-hearted songs all about escape and persevering and overcoming the odds. There's loads of stormy skies and kind of weather-beaten heroes kind of striding on through. And uh, I think we're going to hear one of the songs now, actually, which is called Caution. Mama was a dancer, and that's all that she knew. Cause when you live in the desert, it's what pretty girls do. I'm throwing caution. What's it gonna be? Tonight the winds of change are blowing wild and free. If I don't get out, out of this town, I just might be the one who finally music to drift off into the distance with that which uh, brings me to a point i have told you three this already um so this isn't a total surprise uh, this is the last podcast we're doing um and as a farewell i thought it'd be quite nice to talk about the best way to bid goodbye who's done it right and i know someone who always was very good at uh, leaving a party jackie stephen what was the best way to leave a party jackie <laughs> I don't know how to leave a party, really. Uh, I'm usually still there at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, the bad way is to throw up into an ice bucket in carriages at your employer's party. Uh, bad way to leave. <laughs> when I lost a job a few years ago, I used my redundancy money to go to the airport, get on a first-class flight on Virgin Atlantic, and stay at the Beverly Bullshire Hotel, and I blew the loss in 10 days. That was a great ending. Um, I think that when you're trying to get out of something, the best thing is to, to look to the future. And, you know, when one door shuts, usually another one does. But you've got to pass a lot of doors before the final one finally shuts. <laughs> Claudia, what about on TV? Who's, who's come out of a series? What are the great endings of TV? Well, when I think about the best endings on TV, actually, it's, it's always comedies that, that, that spring to mind. Um, I would say that uh, Golden Girls ended really well. Blackadder. Oh, Blackadder, yeah. yeah. Blackadder yeah, was, was a movie. really movie. With them going over the top and yeah. so poignant as, as well as funny. It was. I thought The Office, the UK version of The Office, that they came back for a Christmas special and where Tim and Dawn got together and David Brent sort of finally realised that Finchley, the man he hero worship, was a bit of an idiot. But uh, Cheers, uh, Cheers had a, a I think that ended on a perfect note after a 10-year run. Sam was about to sell the bar. Uh, he, he did change his mind at the very last minute, but there was this great scene where all of the major characters, Sam and Norm, Cliff, Carla, Woody and Fraser, they all sit around and they sort of ponder the meaning of life in a, in a, in a rather amusing way. We can remind ourselves with a clip here. I keep asking myself, what, what is the point to life? Whew, that's a tough question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I got the answer. Somehow I knew you would. <laughs> Comfortable shoes. <laughs> shoes. Yeah. If you're not wearing comfortable shoes, life is just chaos. I mean, the greatest accomplishments in history have been made by men wearing accommodating shoes. <laughs> well, Fraser, tell me, who do you think is the greatest thinker in all mankind? I don't know, uh... 
Aristotle. There you go. Sandals. <laughs> Perhaps the most comfortable shoe there is. You hardly even know they have them on. I mean, Confucius, thongs. Einstein, loose loafers. Wow. Comfortable shoes, Jackie. What about in the movies? What, 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 what's your favourite ending in the movie? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Gone with the Wind, Chinatown. Uh, I absolutely love the ending of E.T. because, it's for me, it's the greatest ending of any movie. There are only two words. E.T. wants Elliot to come with him. Elliot says he wants him to stay. And there are just two words, and it's come, stay. Just two words, beautiful dialogue, and two people who are really destined for each other but can't be together. It's the story of all our lives, or certainly all of my history of boyfriends. And uh, I think we're just going to hear a bit of that now. Come. I'm weeping. I'm, I'm weeping now. I tell you, it's just wonderful. They can't be together, and because they work their worlds apart, it's just every time I see that, I say I'm not going to cry, and I swore today. <laughs> I wouldn't cry, and I'm crying again. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite incredibly poignant, Adrian. In the in the music world. People just don't want to go. It's like boxing, isn't it? They keep on coming back. I mean, Frank Sinatra became a joke about it. It's the problem with musicians. I mean, the uh, the farewell tour is usually just a prelude to the comeback tour. I mean, I think <laughs> I think Cher did her first farewell tour in 2002, and uh, she was still treading the boards last year. I think Ozzy Osbourne, um, in the 90s, he did his No More Tours tour, and he's doing his No More Tours tour too. That's a bit of a tongue twister. This well, he would have been doing it this summer. Um, so it, it, it's a bit of a weird one with musicians. Oh, there, there have been a few that have gone out um, on a high. I thought the Jam. I was lucky enough to see not their final concert, but I think their penultimate concert at Wembley Arena in 1982. And I think, I think that there was a band, Paul Weller. I think they got out at just the right time. I think the Jam. They were a band who are who are all about youth, really, and uh, the idea of them, you know, seeing the jam singing in the city um, in their sixties just wouldn't really ring true. <laughs> yeah. But um, oh, well, the who do my generation in their seventies? Well, that's true. That's true. Um, I thought I thought Bowie when he retired Ziggy Stardust. I thought that was uh, um, a moment because he, uh, I think he was playing Hammersmith Odeon in London and. Uh, he knew he was about to retire that persona, but he hadn't actually informed the band. And so I think they were as surprised as anyone when at the end of the show, he said, not only is this the last show of the tour, it's the last show that we'll ever do. Oh, God. And uh, <laughs> I think, yeah. uh, and of course, I mean, he came back, he was touring again within a couple of years, but uh, he never donned the uh, the mesh top and glittery trousers in, in quite the same way again. I think with music as well, there are lots of very sad endings. I'm thinking particularly Buddy Holly in the plane crash, uh, Mark Bolan with his car crash you know there are just so many sad endings for musicians uh, amy winehouse is another one why do you think it is that so many musicians have really sad endings in hotel rooms or in crashes is it their crazy lifestyle i just think it's i mean maybe it comes with the turf to an extent i think i think there have been great farewells in terms of you know people making great last albums of course at the time we never knew it was their last album we never knew that abbey road or let it be was going to be the last beatles albums we never knew that back to black was going to be the last amy winehouse record but uh, you know it sadly turned out that way um, i don't know if musicians it's a particular 
thing with musicians. I mean, there's there's plenty of them have, have died, but I think it's maybe just showbiz in general. People, you know, at, at some point they 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 make their last record and. Um, Going back to uh, David Bowie, of course, he never did anything wrong, in my opinion, but his final way out was incredibly dignified, poignant, sad. He knew he was making his last album. He was dying of cancer and was in there doing it. Yeah, and that record, it came out, I think Black Star was released on the Friday, and he died in the early hours of the following Monday, and... I mean, I was as guilty as anyone. We all, you know, we all reviewed that album. We thought it's a brilliant record. When you listen back to it now, he knew he was going. And some of those songs, none of us picked up on it, but he was, he was saying goodbye on that, on that record. Um, I think slightly more obviously, obviously, I think Leonard Cohen on his, his last album, I think, which came out a couple of weeks before he died, which was called uh, You Want It Darker. There was, there was definitely kind of signs on there that he, he knew he was going. But, but yeah, Bowie, I mean, we, yeah, he certainly went out typically on a high. Oh, why do we all have to die? It's so unfair. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie, with that, I'm going to bid you all a fond farewell and just say thank you so much for what you've done over the past year. It's been brilliant. uh, It's been great working with you all. And it's been all your insights have been so good. Uh, We'll miss you. I'm going to miss these chats. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Thank you, everyone. Cheers, Jim. Great fun. Michael Cashman has just published his autobiography, and the title says it all. One of them, From Albert Square to Parliament Square, tells the story of the extraordinary life of this gay rights activist, from playing the character Colin Russell in EastEnders to a nigh-on 40-year political career. He was elevated to the House of Lords in 2014, soon after his partner Paul Cottingham sadly died of cancer. And when we spoke, I suggested to him that now he's a long-term member of the House of Lords, he should surely change the title of his memoir. As someone occupying the very epicentre of the establishment, isn't he now one of us? Well, you'd be right, but the book finishes just as I go in. Um, uh, and of course, you wouldn't expect someone like me to use the Thatcherite term like one of us. Um, but the, 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 the interesting thing is one of them features as a, as a phrase very early in the book. It, it's a book, I call it a, it, a, a roller coaster uh, because it takes you on a journey where you laugh, you're surprised. People say to me, why have you put some of these things in? Because they're quite dark. But I, I knew I was gay at a very early age, but of course we didn't use that terminology then. It was you refer to yourself as queer. But actually, in the East End, if they thought you were gay or queer, they used to say, I think he's one of them. So that's where the title comes from. And it comes from a, a, a little tiny episode where I know at the, this early age of about seven that I'm different, that I'm attracted to other boys. And my mum makes me dance for her and my Aunt Eileen. And as I'm dancing away like this little whirling uh, dervish, I hear my mum say, I think he's one of them. And I panic. Inside I panic because suddenly I know that they know uh, I'm different. Um, And so that's where uh, the title comes from. But uh, in the House of Lords, I think they they still probably say, he's one of us, but you know, he is one of them. (laughs) 
I've heard it described, the House of Lords, as the best members club in Britain. Uh, are you enjoying being a, a member of the best members club in Britain? Oh, well, I'm a bit like Groucho Marx. I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Um, I don't belong to a, a members club. I used to belong to the Ivy and I, 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 I cancelled my membership. In all honesty, I went in uh, full of the the zealotry of reform, reform, reform. Uh, and when I went in four days after Paul died, I was astounded at the warmth and the understanding and the kindness and the nobility that I was shown. And I've since changed my mind. It does need reforming. I, do, I don't want a, a, a directly elected House. I think that gets us into a, a, a jousting match between which of the two Houses has got greater legitimacy. But I think a partially appointed House, uh, a partially indirectly elected House, so you're the leader of, let's say, Leeds City Council, and you have a right to sit in the House of Lords during your tenure and 18 months after, uh, because the calibre of the contribution, you couldn't buy it. The expertise and the wisdom, you couldn't buy. Of course, there are people who are there just because of patronage, but that very soon gets filtered out and you're taken seriously as to how you engage. And for me, as an ex-member of the European Parliament, it's the natural way of working. No one party has a majority, like in the European Parliament. So if you don't work cross-party, if you don't try and win the argument, you won't get anything through. So for me, it's a natural home, and I find it a much more politically and intellectually satisfying way of working, because all you, everyone owns the success, and that is so important in any democracy, especially a democracy dealing with Brexit and with COVID. Uh, it's a fascinating book, yours. You, you've you straddled two worlds. You're a long-time actor. You've been a long. You've been a politician almost as long as you were an actor, weren't you? Because, as you say, you were first in the uh, European Parliament. Obvious question, Michael. Sorry to ask it, but is there any similarity between those two worlds? Um, uh, of course, there is, because you're as good as how you communicate what you believe in uh, and if it's a manifesto you can have the, the most brilliant manifesto in the world but if you can't communicate what it means if you can't communicate a vision then people switch off i've always said uh, and i won't name them but there are a couple of crucial things in recent history where if the then prime minister had turned around and said of course I was considering calling an election, but actually I decided not to because I think this country's interests are best served by my party. Um, and that's why I didn't call it because the polls were, were against us. If you say that, people connect with your language and with your integrity. But if you mop it up as, oh, no, I didn't want to call an election, I wasn't going to, they go, oh, yeah, I don't believe you. And communication, politics and communication uh, and acting uh, are, are the same. And, and again, it's, it's about what you believe. My dad used to say, people can smell horseshit before they hear it. <laughs> and no more so in politics and in acting. When you walk on stage and you don't believe what you're doing, the audience turn off, the electorate turn off. One of the things that many people will remember you from uh, is being Colin in EastEnders. And of course, Colin 
was a character who was involved in the first ever televised uh, gay kiss. I mean, that sounds like another era. It wasn't that long ago, but that was part of what you were hoping uh, to do uh, in politics, wasn't it? More, get more gay rights and, and so forth to, to prominence. What do you think is more effective, a gay kiss on EastEnders or you standing up in Parliament defending gay rights? Interestingly, Jim, when I was doing that first gay kiss on a soap in 1987, I had no intention of going into politics. My time on EastEnders was, was serving the script and serving a very strict uh, producer, Julia Smith. What changed my life was when Margaret Thatcher's government brought in the first anti-lesbian and gay law in 100 years. And I thought, as an openly gay, gay man playing that part, I have to be on that march against this discriminatory law. And so it was that, interestingly, that, that pushed me into forming with Ian McKellen, the Stonewall Group that campaigns for equality, not, not superior rights, but equality. What is most effective? Uh, I think the, the two are very effective in different ways. It, on screen, if we see in, in, in a show that we know with characters that we know, if we see something that otherwise before has been depicted as different and alien, and it seems ordinary, uh, we engage much more because it's coming into our homes, we feel comfortable, especially week in, week out. Me standing up in, in uh, Parliament, the European Parliament, or, or in uh, Westminster is equally important because whether, as a, particularly as a gay man, you lead by peer leadership. You stand up and you say, I can be openly gay. I can become my unique self and I can still stand up for what I believe in and my sexual orientation, a tiny part of my life will not be used to hold me back and therefore it won't be used to hold you back. And if it does, all the more reason why people like me and others and the younger generation coming through have the courage to say, you can't do that to those people living in Uganda or in, in Londonderry or Belfast, because that could be me. That could be my daughter, my son. I could be living there. And so it's all a part of that, that great amalgam of standing up for the rights of others as if they were your rights. And, that's, uh, and accepting the responsibility that goes with the rights reading the bits about your political career it's a, it's a, it's been an interesting one it's it's been one full of uh, controversy you've not been frightened of going alone you've you've split away from the labor party over uh, the the brexit decision and and, and and so on was that a frightening moment i don't mean that that you were physically uh, scared but frightening that you're putting your whole sort of uh, sense of values on the line at that moment no because at that moment you're reinforcing your values you, it's, it's what I call that section 28 moment. Um, these moments when they happen, when I was, you know, I'd been the chair of the Labour Party. I've been the chair of the national executive. Um, and the uh, dragging our feet over the anti-Semitism and then trying to face both ways over Brexit. Uh, I knew that if I didn't take that decision the day before the European election to say tomorrow morning, I'm voting for a party that's been consistently pro-European even though I'm not a Liberal Democrat. If I hadn't done that, equally, if I hadn't gone on that march against Section 28, 
I wouldn't be my father's son. The generations like my father that, that went to war, that, that fought for the right to stand up for what you believe in. It's, it's funny, it's those moments. Like in EastEnders, when Paul and I, uh, Paul's life, he was exposed, he was outed uh, in the center pages of the then News of the World, and they put the location of our address. And that afternoon, a brick came through the window. And strangely enough, it's like that same moment. You don't feel weakened as you pick up that brick. You think, how dare you? You think you win, you'll win? No, because actually, this makes me stronger. Standing up for what you believe, I can go on for ages and ages. But my nan used to say, and I think it's the Cashmans, it runs through our genes. If I'm right, she'd say, I'll die at their feet. And you've got to, you've got to go to the wall for something. And if it's not for your principles, then what is it? We saw... Glenda Jackson spent 30-odd years in the House of uh, Commons and then returned back to the drama uh, very late on in, in life. I mean, she's in great shape, but she was in her 80s and an, an, an astonishing uh, performance on the TV in the play that she was in last year. Any chance of you doing the same? Are we going to see a return to the boards from Michael Cashman? Well, some people say seeing me in the House of Lords, I haven't left the boards. Um, the, the interesting thing is, uh, and it was Glenys Kinnock who reminded me when I went into European politics at the age of nearly 40. And Glenys said, never look over your shoulder. She said, I know you. Remember, you're here because of the experience that you've had in life. And that's what makes you. You didn't go into politics from an early, very early age. Equally as an actor, whatever you do, creates a much more interesting performer because you're the sum of your experience. And the one thing I have learned about acting, which is that the, uh, the less you emote, the more interesting it is for an audience. Alan Akebourne once said to me, the brilliant writer who was directing me in a play, and he said, what's more moving, an actor crying or an actor trying not to cry? So as, as, who knows? But I... I've had the most amazing life, some, as I said, some, some very dark and awful experiences, some amazing and some outrageous experiences, all in that book. And uh, I'm pleased to say it isn't over yet. The great regret of my life is that Paul died too early. But a great friend of his said, you know, looking at Paul, I've come to the conclusion that when you're born, you only have so much life to live. And he lived it all. That's a great eulogy. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. And uh, the book's out now? It is out now. Uh, I always say available in all good and bad bookshop. <laughs> so, as you just heard, that's all we have time for from It's Friday, not just this week, but forever. I've had a blast over the past 10 months sharing time with Brian Viner, Jackie Stephen, Adrian Thrills and Claudia Connell. Thank you all for your brilliance, clarity and good humour. And thank you too to the great team behind the microphone, to York Membry who booked all our guests, to Rob War, and especially to our brilliant producer, Lisa Mannering. And thank you too for listening. We really must do this again sometime. Goodbye. Goodbye.